Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat number 213 for the 9th of September 2015. It's John Shire hosting this week. Uh, Chester is unavailable, so I thought I'd step into the chair. Uh, and joining me this week is Paul Ducklin. Good afternoon, Paul. Hello, John. 9th of September, 9-9. It works in both Europe and the US. That's right. So I, I can't make a mistake today. Well, may, maybe I can, but uh, I'll try not to. So let's start this week, Paul, and talk a little bit about Bitcoins. There was a story published on Naked Security this week that talked about one of the former Secret Service agents that was tasked with investigating the Silk Road website. And uh, it, it came to light that one of these special agents was actually embezzling or defrauding the investigation, if you will, by shuttling bitcoins from the account of one Curtis Green into his own account. Now, this uh, particular case has gone to court and the gentleman is now awaiting sentencing. Now, can you remind our listeners exactly what Silk Road was? Well, Silk Road was one of the big so-called dark websites. You could only access it via Tor. So that's a, an encrypted channel that bounces your packets all over. And the idea was you could buy stuff there that would not be legal to buy anywhere else. So that would be things like drugs, apparently some hacking services, maybe even a hitman if you wanted. And it was meant to be a kind of some kind of anarchic experiment. The guy who ran it was recently caught and convicted and sentenced to life in prison without parole. And the investigation was quite complicated. You know, trying to track down someone in this web of anonymity is not easy. There was a, an investigator, an agent in the Secret Service in the US, who were, was a, apparently on the take as well. So as you say, he, he when he found some bitcoins lying around, which it, it's like having a big wad of cash, except you just have some some strings of digits in files. Um, he took them, and no one was the wiser, until he tried to cash them out. And he cashed them out for some $800,000, and uh, now he is in all sorts of trouble. And quite right, too. He's supposed to be supporting the law, investigating a crime, and not, not committing one at the same time. There was an interesting twist to this story as I read it, which was that... Uh... When he was exfiltrating his bitcoins, one of the hops that he took was to stash them in the now defunct Mount Gox. Now, some of you may recall that uh, this might be the same Mount Gox that <laughs> he misplaced. He just got them out in time, didn't he? <laughs> right, that misplaced around $500 million worth of bitcoins, wasn't it? It was um, based in Japan, run by a guy called Mark Carpeles. Uh, he's in all sorts of trouble as well. He hasn't actually been arrested over the missing bitcoins yet. He claims innocence in that regard. But he is, uh, I believe, under arrest in Japan at the moment for misstating his earnings. Moving along, there was a breach or, well, there's a bit of a discussion on this one. Was it a breach? Was it a leak um, at WH Smith recently? This was an interesting one because it involves some users of a, an online property that WH Smith owns basically using the contact us form and getting back a little more than they bargained for. Yes, this is one of those things where the word snafu comes in handy. As far as I can make out, what happened is there was a, a form you could fill in saying contact us. Uh, and it seems that in this case, what happened is that uh, when you filled in your data, it actually got sent to some or all of the other people who'd already signed up. 
So it sounds minor compared to, say, in Ashley Madison, where there's this giant database with tens of millions of people in it, and it all gets spilled at once. And that's why this has been, as you say, sort of described, oh, it's a bug, not a breach. I think it's both. It doesn't matter whether you breach a million or one user. The degree maybe matters to how culpable you are and what penalty you might get. But that one person whose data you spilled is going to be as unhappy about it being one out of one as they would be being one out of a million. Now, W.H. Smith kind of tried explaining it away by saying, you know, it, it wasn't a breach, it was a bug, and it didn't involve financials and was rather small. Now, that kind of sounds to me like they're trying to downplay this a little bit, doesn't it? Yes, I mean, I can see the point. It wasn't 30 million records. It was uh, a few dozen, apparently, fewer than 40. But it's still a great reminder that if you're going to outsource some of your operation, particularly when it's to do with marketing and mailing lists, You can outsource the sending of the mail, the collecting of the data, the running of the web form, but you cannot outsource the responsibility. It remains yours. The good old 360 degrees of responsibility. Um, I think, yeah, those are definitely some lessons that we can learn in in terms of making sure that any kind of outsourcing is vetted and and assessed with the same rigor that you would anything that is done in-house. And as you said, you know, even though it was less than 40, I'm sure those less than 40 people took it uh, just as seriously as would have million people. The other neat thing to notice about this story, John, is it seems that one reason that very few people are affected is that... As soon as users realized something was going wrong, like they were getting other people's data, they said something. And that's a great point. If you see something, say something. Don't leave it to the next guy. The sooner you report it, the more likely it is something can be done about it. Well said. So Firefox was in the news as well. It seems there was an attacker running wild within the Bugzilla bug tracking software that the Mozilla Corporation uses to store information about flaws within its software. So how did this attacker get in in the first place? It looks as though he got in because there were too many people on the trusted users list and one of them had shared their Bugzilla password with another website. Oh dear. And the other website got hacked. Skeleton key, thanks for coming. Right, and this is something that we've written about, that we've talked about at length When it comes to good password practices, one of the big don'ts is do not reuse passwords on websites. And we've seen this in the past, I believe, with the Dropbox breach that occurred a few years ago. This attacker was allegedly on the site for at least a year, if not two years, and had access to quite a bit of privileged information that could have caused a lot of damage. That's the worrying part, isn't it? They definitely were in for a year, but it might have been two. That's quite a large window of uncertainty, isn't it? It sure is. Uh, The confidence interval on that one is quite large now. uh, (laughs) It's an interesting choice of the word confidence. I'm I'm reading. (laughs) I'm in the middle of reading a book on statistics. I thought I'd throw that out there. I thought you might be. What's Mozilla doing to prevent this from happening again? Well, they're doing what they probably ought to have done long, long ago, given how important the data is that this guy had access to, you know, the inner view of how to pwn Firefox, uh, two-factor authentication. As we know, it doesn't fix all problems, but it does mean that just stealing a password isn't enough because there's this second factor, which is a login code that changes for every login. 
In addition, Mozilla has also published an FAQ document that we link to in the article that explains with a bit more detail what Mozilla is doing about preventing this. Now, wouldn't it have been nice if they had have done those things, all of those things in the first place? Well, 6-6 six, six vision is always there in hindsight, isn't it? <laughs> uh, you know, when you're reading that eye chart, if you know what the letters are, it's jolly easy. <laughs> right. So... You would have hoped so, particularly given that Mozilla makes both the bug tracking software <laughs> that was uh, maliciously used and the browser that lots of people use that is responsible for keeping you safe online. At least they've said, OK, we're going to pull our socks up now. That's what we can take from this. Now, if you are a Firefox user, then the latest version of this software has all of these bugs patched. That's Firefox for you know, on your desktop or for Android or the ESR uh, version of Firefox. 40.0.3, if I'm not wrong. Correct. So let's finish off with uh, a fun story for, for this week, and that is of the pigeon code. Yes, the dead pigeon code, not the dead parrot code. Uh, very easy to get confused. We won't, so we won't be turning this into a Monty Python sketch, but some time ago, there was a man in the south of England who was renovating his house and basically came across the skeleton of a pigeon, and attached to the leg bone of that pigeon was a, a small capsule, which turned out uh, to contain what looked like a coded message dating back to World War II, and GCHQ kind of released this message saying, you know, here's an unbreakable code for you guys to, to puzzle over. And um, it involved what's called a one-time pad. Can you describe for our listeners who may not be familiar what exactly a one-time pad is? To be more precise, it may be a one-time pad. It could be a code book. The problem is we've got 27 code groups and that's all and no context. So it may be a one-time pad. And that, very simply put, is a cipher system in which the key is perfectly random there are only two copies of the key. You have one and I have the other. And the key is as long as the message. Therefore, if after I send the message to you, I destroy my copy of the key, you are the only guy who can decrypt it. And if you then destroy your copy of the key, the message is technically secure forever. And the reason for that is that because the key is random, there's no pattern to it that would allow it to be reconstructed. And because it is as long as the message, therefore every single possible decryption is equally likely to be correct statistically. So you can decode a message to say attack, you can pick a different key and get the message retreat, you will never know which it was. But it is a fascinating piece of uh, cryptographic history. It, it sure is. And the British made a lot of use of pigeons during the Second World War. They could get back from occupied France across the channel fairly quickly. They fly at about 100 kilometers an hour or something. An amazing way of doing uh, wireless communications 70 years ago. Now, it, this particular puzzle was supposed to have been solved back in 2012, wasn't it? Yes, there was a Canadian chap called Gord Young uh, who claimed to have decoded it, but it was all a hoax. He treated it as a sort of acronym code or initialism code where each letter in the code stood for something. According to him, HVPKD would decode as have panzers in K sector determined. And the problem with this decryption is not only that it's full of anachronisms, but that 
the decryption that he comes up with is just meaningless drivel. It really is. Now, there's a different story coming uh, recently from a, a chap in uh, Spain, Didac Sanchez, I hope I pronounced that correctly. So this 22-year-old Spaniard claims that he has finally cracked the pigeon cipher at last. And according to the article in The Telegraph, he spent upwards of 1.5 million euros or $1.7 million to solve this particular puzzle. Uh, but there's a bit of a twist, isn't there? <laughs> yes. I think he's pulling our leg, John. He's cracked it, but uh, he's not telling us what it said. So we still don't know what that poor dead pigeon's last message was supposed to be. Well, there you go. And I guess we may never know. So on that note, I will conclude Sophos Security Checklist Chat number 213. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find more on iTunes, the TuneIn app, or at soundcloud.com slash security. You can find all the latest security news and advice at nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And until next time, stay secure.